Hello and welcome to Build Back Better, a series of online conversations from For the Region about the future of South West Wales. Hello and welcome to our next roundtable for our series of online conversations around Build Back Better. With today's topic comes up in lots of conversations, whether we're talking about developments, food or furniture, procurement is a hot topic. We're delighted to be joined today by some very passionate procurement people from across the region. And I'd like to introduce you to Julie Jones, Director of Gower Gas and Oil Heating Services, Paul Malafant, Account Leader of Mock McDonald's, Lisa Brown, Economy and Enterprise Lead for Pobble Group, Nigel Morgan from Pembrokeshire County Council, Gary Walpole, Director of Circular Economy Innovation Communities at Swansea University, and Dave Keith, Managing Director of RD Group. Welcome, I'm Zoe Antrobus from For the Region and this is my co-host Dawn Lyle. Thank you, Zoe. Yeah, welcome everyone. Thanks so much for joining us this afternoon. Anyone that knows me and Zoe at For the Region knows that we talk a lot about procurement and in particular about community wealth building. So how can we retain more of the region's big spending in the region and get more value from that spending. Huge numbers of millions of pounds are spent in the region, but so much of it is extracted straight out of our local economies by big contracts with organisations that are not local, not resident in the region itself. And that's such a loss of opportunity. But it's not just that. It's not just about keeping money in the region to recycle and circulate within our local economies. It's making sure that the money we're spending is extracting maximum value, both environmental value, social value, and all the other good stuff that could happen with that money if it was spent consciously with organisations that are doing good locally. And we talk about the circular economy and the need to get maximum value out of these major contracts, whether we're talking about city deal and big infrastructure investments or the kind of contracts that housing associations are putting out all the time. How can we make sure that as a region we're getting long-term, not just economic value, but environmental and social value out of those contracts? So it's a pet subject, not just for me and for Zoe, but I think for everyone in this room today, we've got some really passionate people who hopefully through the course of today's conversation will be able to fill us in on some of the amazing work that is happening already in South West Wales that we just love to scale up and see more of it. And on that note, I'd like to bring in Lisa, who's working with Pobble Housing Group on a really innovative and exciting project in Penderry. Lisa, can I hand over to you and you talk for a couple of minutes about the project that you're involved with and what your focus is. Thanks for inviting me everyone. I'm really delighted to be here today. Human is one of my passions and I've worked on it for quite a long time. My work as part of the Pobble Group is working on the regeneration of the Penderry area and also Hill and Newport. And it's basically looking at how we can get more young people and community members involved in the regeneration of that local area. So my work over the last 10 to 12 years, I've worked on large construction programmes from rebuilding one empty room to working on Wales's largest road scheme. And as part of my work, we've, I've trained and upskilled more than 10,000 young people and linking them into regeneration within the city centre. So I worked on one city development, one central square. Now I'm working in the Pendary region, which I'm very excited about. And as part of the work with the Pobble Group, it's looking at how we can really engage micro businesses and people from that community to create as much community benefit as possible. We've started, I've got an initial project which is called Sorbet, which is a digital app 
And then we've also got an energy project in Penderi, which is retrofitting 700 of the homes in the local area. As part of that scheme, we're looking at how we can remove any barriers for small micro businesses to access and win work with the Pobble Group. So we've started a number of um, business breakfasts called Shaping Your Community, and they've been really well received. So we've had around 12 micro and small businesses, and we're planning then to link them into the procurement with, within the group. And how, how that looks is that we are initially engaging local people from the local area, but for me personally, I'm passionate about getting more women and girls into winning large contracts or larger contracts within our housing association, within our group. But also if I can share that knowledge then with others to help other groups and organisations to be able to remove any perceived barriers. One of the things that we've done is we've already had two business breakfasts called Shaping Your Community. We've had 25 micro and small businesses and we had our head of procurement discussing about uh, you know the opportunities to win work within the group. And we've had some really positive response from that and lots of the small micros you know the one I'm talking self-employed they form part of the foundational economy which in Wales we're, we're quite heavily reliant on the foundational economy there's lots as I say cash in hand work there's lots of people doing lots of jobs and I think as part of some of these bigger contracts we need to look at how we build some of those micro businesses and link them into mainstream contracts and one of the things that we're looking at is how we can remove barriers and support those businesses to set up structures also so how they might be able to access insurance because we know that some of the insurance criteria is quite strict sometimes we quote for example that they have to have 10 million pounds worth of insurance do we really need that so we're, we're questioning some of the traditional ways that we're working and trying to really simplify how local people can win that work because at the end of the day what we really need to do is we need to invest in, in those areas and we need to ensure that for every pound spent, two pounds reinvested, which is the case in England. So I'm quite passionate to see how we can take this forward. And I've done the work in this area for quite a long time, probably about five, six years. I currently work with around 400 startups and growth businesses. And then I've also working with new micro businesses as well. So as part of the procurement, we're really looking at how we can remove any barriers. I think that's the key in all of this really, is how we can remove any perceived barriers and also how we can reduce any like bureaucracy and red tape or pa paperwork I'll just call it paperwork and how we can really make the process simpler and easier for some of our businesses to bid into so in, in Scotland they've got a model for procuring contracts where they invite three small businesses to bid in for work they have a two-page project proposal and then they invite them through to interview and then they win work. Now, I know this process is taking place in Wales, but I think we need to do more work around, you know, removing those barriers and also... I think highlighting for me what opportunities are there within the local area. So one of the things I've recently developed is something called the top 10 projects. And so what will happen with that is our procurement teams currently, we work with a number of contractors and they have allocations for community benefits. For example, they could allocate between 3,000 and 5,000 pounds for a community project. Some will offer on-site apprenticeships and training. So what we're looking at as part of that is some of that doesn't get spent or it doesn't get used in the right place, or it may go to, you know sponsor a local football kit or so it's things like making sure that we redirect those community benefits to the place where they're most needed and then make the most impact so we've just set up this top 10 community projects and we've got a focus for the group on young people women and girls and BAME groups 
and that is a key focus of the regeneration um, throughout the whole programme over the next four years and we'll be looking at ways that we can get young people from the community and women and girls onto site to gain site experience but also how we can really help some of the smaller and micro businesses to really grow so it's a long-term approach and hopefully with the right people around the table and that long-term goal that we can really see a difference in this area because I think for so long people are looking at how we can improve procurement and community benefits and how we deliver more value for money and how we build back better and I think at the moment it's, it's a really perfect opportunity and a perfect time to really focus and drive in on this area so for me you know I've always promoted a 50-50 gender split on construction sites and, and in industry and also that we encourage more um, smaller businesses, especially female-owned micro-businesses, to bid in for contract work. And sometimes I think the challenges are that certain groups don't know or they're not aware of contracts that are going on. So one of the things that we're looking at is just having a one-page simple A4 sheet that highlights some of the smaller contracts. And our procurement teams now are breaking down in their contracts into smaller lots. That will reduce some of the risk that's perceived. If you look at, for example, a small business, they may be turning over 40,000 and then you've got a contract which is 300,000. There is a nervousness there with people to allocate that small or micro business that amount of funding. But actually, I think people in Wales are so resilient and they're up for the challenge. So it's really how we take a few more risks with the procurement and also how we do things differently. Because if we do things that we've always done before, we're not going to see that change. So for me, I think it's about making a difference, doing things differently and really focusing on you know, those regeneration areas. Right. Yeah, I think there's a lot to unpack there, Lisa. Really interested to hear about how there's a more joined up approach to how companies might spend their community benefit money more strategically. This Pobble project is particularly interesting because of the focus on removing barriers. And I wanted to bring Julie Jones in here because I think all too often when we talk about helping smaller businesses win more public sector contracts, the focus is on upskilling those SMEs. So we are we doing tendering workshops and we're teaching them how to do it better. And the, the problem is small businesses don't know how to bid for contracts. And from all the engagement we've had over the last few years, we're a bit sick of hearing that. I mean, undoubtedly, there are training and support that can be offered to SMEs. But what I think a lot of us want to see happen is the major buyers in the region reflecting in inwardly, internally, and thinking, what are the ways in which we're putting up barriers that don't need to be there? Julie, do you want to come in on that? As an SME based in South West Wales, bidding for contracts, do you think that it misses the mark, some of this training and, and putting the, the focus on what businesses need to do and actually is there more that the buyers should be doing? I represent the SME community and private sector who battling I think to stay relevant and survive at the moment with the pandemic and any help that they can have with regard to removing barriers in procurement is obviously going to see growth and development in the future in our communities. With regard to barriers, I think we're at a, a crossroads really because I understand it, the European procurement 
rules were set up was was actually a primary barrier for SME businesses like ourselves because when marking tenders, procurers were not allowed to give any additional bonus points or any recognition of the fact that the particular business tendering was rooted in the area, was invested in the area. And as I understand it now, we actually are at a crossroads in that through leaving the European Union, then things can potentially change in a way that they couldn't before. It's incredibly frustrating, I think, from a private sector perspective when you're tendering to be going for tenders that you consistently know you, you haven't got a chance to compete with because obviously the buying power of the entities that you're challenging in the tendering process, you're just completely blown out of the water. You can't compete on price. You can't compete on administration. Part of the problem I think that you find with regards to procurement is if, for example, an entity such as British Gas should tender for contracts, and they do, then they've got a whole floor of people who do what an SME trader is expected to do. And one of the biggest barriers, I think, for SME providers like ourselves is you're actually busy doing the job. And so taking weeks and weeks out at a time in order to attend training events, which I've done over the years, and, you know, I've benefited hugely from a lot of Welsh government initiatives and training. I've done all the courses. I've done some of them twice. But obviously our business setup allows for me to do that, whereas micro-businesses, they just aren't able to, to, to do that and they're not able to get their first foot on the ladder because in order to, to train, they need to actually step away from the work that earns them their money and take time out to do it. And, you know, financially, that's not always a viable prospect, unfortunately. I've had countless experiences of sitting at roundtable training events where people say, well, I, I'd like to start up a cleaning business or a building or a plastering or whatever, but, but I can't take, you know, two days out a, a, a month in order to learn about tendering. It's, it's sad but true that the tendering process is very much stacked against micro-businesses. The wider tendering process has been very much stacked against SMEs and medium enterprises locally, like ourselves, with regards to Lisa and what you're saying, which was hugely positive to hear. But you will have situations where on service maintenance or just service tenders and contracts, then organisations will put in a bond. The provider needs to indemnify the buyer against loss for sometimes £100,000 and it just puts that contract to bed and I've worked through countless tendering opportunities that we could do without question and yet there are preventative measures upfront there are preventative barriers it's just stacked you know from from a point of view of purchasing you imagine the power that an entity provider has in driving down prices smes don't have that they are going to be more expensive but i think what needs to happen with regard to procurement and the welsh government is the, the first thing that we need to be thinking about is 
what exactly are we getting as value for money out of these contracts? Yes, okay, you may save a few pounds here and there by going with an entity who will bus people in and then bus them out of your communities, but you do not then have engaged participants within the community. And particularly when you've just come out of a pandemic, you need local people, you need local resources, we need local networks. And when you have a barren landscape where small businesses have been priced out of the market, you simply, you know, Wales and its economy becomes sterile and irrelevant unless we encourage this sort of foundational approach, which I was incredibly proud to be part of, as was developed by the Deputy Minister Lee Waters. I think it is a movement which is recognising the past and recent past mistakes and hopefully and optimistically will go forward to actually taking down the barriers that are preventing small businesses just like mine who I meet day in day out who are unable simply unable to compete for large public service contracts. What I would actually like to see is the first thing that happens is public sector providers say Right, okay, we've got a large contract going out and Welsh Government should say to them, okay, so we will mark you on how many small companies you actually procure with rather than procuring for convenience for the administrators. But I think we've kind of got the horse and the cart the wrong way around. We should be procuring for the benefit of our communities and not procuring for the benefit of what's easy for the administrators. And, and I apologize if that's too passionate a plea. <laughs> Very much where I sit. I think quite um, as well. Just a quick I just wanted to come back on that really just to talk about like EU structured funding. It is virtually impossible with all the regulations around that. The smaller micro businesses to bid. I mean, I could name a few organisations off the top of my head. I mean, this funding just sat there, which is supposed to be used to help train and upskill young people, women and girls, and it's not being spent because the, the process is too complicated, it's too archaic, and I think we really need to modernise. So I, I hear what you're saying, Julian, I completely agree. Um, I just think we, we really need to use this opportunity to modernise the way that we're delivering our contracts and really grasp it by the horns and say, right, we need to do something different because this process is not working. It's not working for our micro businesses. And what can we do to change it for the future? And really, you know, take this opportunity, like you say, uh, Julie, to really, you know, progress this forward at speed. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a, there's a great appetite and we've felt that in all the conversations we've had with both public sector partners and with small businesses, actually everybody wants the same thing and everybody does understand the importance and the benefit of procuring more locally and building up that resilience in our local supply chains. And that's all the more important now, of course, during the pandemic. And I think there's lots that you've touched on there, Julie, that we can perhaps come back on about how tenders are scored and how we're measuring value for money. And actually, if we're, if we're thinking long term, and really, we think that the, the principles of the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act should be absolutely embedded in the scoring matrices yeah 
for tenders and, and are those contracts delivering on the, on the well-being goals? I'd like to bring in Nigel Morgan from Pembrokeshire Council. I mean, there's, there's great examples across our region in, in pockets of activity where local authorities and other public sector organisations are really trying to work differently and rethink procurement. And I know Pembrokeshire Council has been congratulated for some of the efforts that have been made in that direction. Nigel, can you tell us a little bit about what's going on in Pembrokeshire in relation to all this and where you think change is happening? Uh, it's interesting to hear everyone's comments because I think there's no doubt both suppliers and buyers are frustrated with some of the, the, the red tape that goes on with the official tenders. Pembrokeshire are very proud of uh, the fact that we're, um, every year for maybe the last 15 or 20 years, we've consistently had at least half of our spend with local suppliers. I think that's partly due to the fact that some of the innovations and the processes that, that we've run, but also perhaps the advantages of the geography, the location where we are. We're right on the west. All our main suppliers would be, you know, they are located in, in, in the southwest. We've uh, been able to use those. A lot of the, the red tape or the, the frustrations around tendering, I think, come from really we mentioned Welsh government I think you know we have rules and regulations we have the, the European procurement regulations we've got to follow them there is only so much you can do to to deliver money locally but I think if everyone is on the same wavelength you can build your specifications you can build your service level requirements around within reason and within the legality of things really to suit the, the local economy and I think we've tried to do that for, for a number of years. I've worked for Pembrokeshire for a long time now. And I think it's changed because we, we, we were definitely at the beginning, it was like more price only for tenders. So you talk about the big companies come in and the smaller companies would have much less chance of gaining business. And I think we moved some years ago to price quality matrix, which I think is standard practice now. But it's how you weight those quality questions your, and how you score them. So we, we put a lot of effort working with departmental managers into the specification and trying to agree what sort of questions we need to ask and what service level requirements we need to ask, which is essential for the job, which can benefit or give local and SMEs, micro businesses a chance to bid and be successful. I think we, we've always said we can't guarantee that local businesses will be awarded contracts because you can't, not within the current uh, climate, you know, in transparency, the laws, the regulations you've got to follow. But we've always been very clear that we want to work in such a way that we maximise the opportunities that they get to tend to win business. Can't guarantee they win it, but we maximise those opportunities. I think our procurement spend last year was 160 million approximately. And I think we spent something like 95 or a million with Pembrokeshire suppliers, which was were well over half. And I think, uh, you know, we're very proud of that. And we've consistently had that, uh, that, those sort of results. But moving forward, you know, obviously because of the, the, the pandemic and the situation that we've been in, I think uh, it's very clear, we, you know, in the recovery phase now, the two areas we need to focus on is buying local where we can, increase that, improve that again supporting our SMEs and buying environmentally friendly and making sure that what we do is, is suits the environment as well and benefits the environment. I think we're currently, all like everyone else, we're probably nearly all working from home still, but I think we, we've been looking at some 
producing some action plans on how we actually achieve that. I think we've got some good ideas in there. At one time, we held a lot of the, the how to tender events, and, and they were sort of specific how to tender events, or, or they could have been just general how to do business with Pembrokeshire County Council. They took a lot of time. I think we, we've alluded to that earlier in, the, in this uh, conversation. We're looking at maybe moving to more online platforms, which would be much easier, quicker for us to set up, but also easier for maybe potential buyers just to attend for an hour here and there with no travelling. Um, you know, we're definitely looking at doing something like that. We, we produce a how to tender guide. We, we, you know, we've got our website. But I'm not sure if a lot of suppliers know that we've got all this information out there. And going back 10 years, we worked with uh, some of the other, I think it was the Pembrokeshire Business, PBI, was it Pembrokeshire Business Initiative was running. They would communicate a lot of this to local suppliers. So things are on our website. We are off, able to offer these services, but I'm not sure if, everyone knows that we've got this yeah so I, I think that's it's an important piece of the puzzle making the the training available to smes and upskilling them do you think there's also a place for training procurement officers and purchasers within the departments within a local authority of what they can do to design the contracts differently from the start? So Lisa mentioned a number of things like breaking things down into smaller lots, simplifying the, the processes. And actually what we found is procurement officers themselves want to be more involved in designing contracts in better ways. And there is a lot of great knowledge across the region and elsewhere of, of what procurement officers can do. Do you think there's a place for sharing those learnings, actually training procurement staff within the purchasing organisations, rather than always putting the ball into the court of the SME and saying, you need to train, you need to learn how to tender. Actually, could we train procurement officers in how to design their contracts differently? Yeah, well, absolutely. I think, you know, we, we of course, we'd like to think that we're, we're already doing a bit of that. But, you know, when you hear, that, you know, there's no doubt the suppliers don't necessarily feel that we are uh, or, or we could be doing more. So I think, you know, we're a small team. We operate a category management approach to procurement. So we've all got different categories we look at. And, you know, I'm thinking all of our team are of the, the same wavelength. There's only six or seven of us. We've got a community benefits officer. We're very much to trying to work with to set our procurements up in small lots or in lots that uh, you know are maximising the opportunities for for those local businesses. SME, but we could do it better. I think you know we work with a contract manager in the department, and they are the technical people. Quite often, to try and uh, convince them that it, this is the way forward, it's quite a difficult task. And sometimes there are good reasons why we shouldn't break it down. I, I'd like to quote, you know, an example, we, we Pembrokeshire and Commandantshire, we operated a shared service procurement project for two years, uh, which finished about a year ago now. So, uh, but whereby there, 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 uh, there was amenity grass cutting, which was initially just put out as a one lot. And it was only one company that actually was ever winning that. And when we, when we got together, we worked with the departments, we broke it all down um, and we, we broke it into three or four regional lots. We had smaller companies, we had cheaper prices over those four lots. In hindsight now, it's been successful, the quality as well. So, you know, we do do those sort of things, but of course we could do more of that. Uh, yes, you know, there is obviously opportunity for improvement and further training, but we, I'd like to think we are doing 
some of that already. Sam's I'm really doing a lot in that area, so it's really refreshing to hear like you go it go in the extra mile. But one of the things that we're looking at, just to touch on that quickly, so we, we developed the, the top ten projects, which we're matching into contractors um, to allocate them um, directly for um, community projects. And we're also then um, we'll create a list, and uh, I'm saying a list, a simplified list. Then we'll send out to the micro and small businesses, so they'll get a one-page document directly with links to sell to Wales. So I think we've just broken. It down I've piloted similar initiatives within um, the university so I had a team of 15 women female-owned businesses and entrepreneurs and we highlighted what uh, funding and contract opportunities were available to them and within about three weeks they then they, they were obviously amazed that there were so many contracts and funding and different opportunities available we didn't highlight all but we had a snapshot about three weeks later the the group went away and I think they won about hundred thousand pounds in contracts and bids and funding so I think sometimes it's it's just about highlighting what opportunities are there and often I think we hear oh well it's on sale to Wales but you you click on and you try and find some of the contracts and it's a bit clunky so I think this simplified process of just putting an A4 paper together and, and sending it out to your 30 micro or small businesses are you aware of these opportunities I think we can do that better in Wales as we're so small like we're good at doing quite a lot of things in England they're quite good at doing that so when they have networks and meetings they say oh did you know this contract's coming up or this you can bid for this or you can win that I think we need to get a bit better in Wales. I mean, it sounds like you're doing a lot of that anyway in Pembroke, so that sounds awesome. But I think within the different organisations and housing associations and Welsh Gov, we could say, oh, do you know that these contracts are, are available that you can bid for? And just send a quick link. And I think, you know, if we do that more, I think we'll find those barriers being removed more. I think that's such a simple fix, really, Lisa, isn't it? It's such an easy thing to do and hopefully, you know, an idea that's a real takeaway. And I think from what Nigel's saying, from the things that are happening in Pembrokeshire Council, it's sharing the learnings. Because I think for local authorities thinking about risk management and thinking about the complexity of some of these challenges, to hear that others have done something and it's worked and it hasn't been risky and actually it's led to all sorts of benefits. I think local authorities sharing those learnings between them would be really powerful as well. I'd like to bring in Gary Walpole next. Gary is based at Swansea University and he's recently launching a project which is the Circular Economy Innovation Community. Now Nigel mentioned um, about how we need to buy things greener and we need to be thinking about the environmental and sustainability benefits of contracts much more than we ever have before. That's so important in the context of the climate emergency. So Gary, tell us about your work, your project, and uh, how you think we can build the circular economy through procurement. So it's a program that's funded by ESF. We are running in the Cardiff Capital region and the Swansea Bay region. Hopefully I'll be able to get Nigel's details and send him some information later about uh, what's gonna happen in the Swansea Bay region because it's really heartening to hear that he's working or has worked with uh, Carmarthenshire, co-develop uh, tenders that can be put out to, to attract, let's say, more local businesses. So what we're hoping to do is bring together uh, people from across the public services that will work together within the two regions, the Swansea Bay region and the Cardiff Capital region, to work on the, the kind of initiatives really that, that Nigel's mentioned. It, it's not prescriptive in terms of the funding around the groups that we engage with. What we're going to do is build inter-organisation communities of practice that will look at their processes. Now they could be procurement processes, they could be waste management processes, they could be recycling processes of 
hospital equipment. Within the funding, what we advised within our business plan was that we'd work with local authorities, we'd work with the NHS, and we'd work with uh, ideally HE and FE in order to get them collaborate to embed circular economy within their thinking and do that within what we've described as an innovation community. Well, I described it as an innovation community because it draws on communities of practice thinking and, and theory, which basically suggests if you get people from different organizations together to collaborate, to work together, to build new processes or amend existing ones, then firstly, they'll draw on each other's knowledge. And I, I think it was you, Dawn, that said that uh, we know where the, the knowledge is in the room or the knowledge is within the region. And the challenge is just getting people together to get them to work together to share that knowledge. And, and that's one of the key principles, really, of communities of practice, that actually you, you bring a group of people together that are passionate. It's great to see Julie's passion about the foundational economy because that's something that communities of practice actually fundamentally brings in. You get people to, together that have a passion, firstly, for circular economy. Uh, and they don't need to know what it is. They just need to know that, actually, if, if we work with others, we can come up with service solutions, or in other words, new ways of doing things that reduce our carbon footprint and also encourage local businesses and public service organizations across the regions to collaborate to do more. The parameters of the funding were to reduce barriers to working together across the public services. So my argument was if we brought together inter-organizational communities of practice, then that reduces the barriers and that enables and facilitates public service leaders and managers to work together and to enhance productivity. And wherever I've worked on projects that involved and incorporated circular economy thinking, we also built in the need to try to reduce cost or increase value. Because I think any innovation that incorporates circular economy should increase value. And it will inherently. The fundamental message behind circular economy is, is reduce, reuse before you recycle. And if you have to recycle, then, then obviously do so. But to give you just a quick example of a recent project that Welsh Water come up with after engaging in a programme, they buy standpipes, which in lay terms, and they had to tell me what it was, was something they just put at the end of a, a water pipe that you might find in your street. They open the valve on it and they allow water to come out in order to flush the pipes in the region. Now, they used to buy those standpipes a few hundred a year, but on investigation, what they found was it was the valve that often broke in the standpipe, not the structural, you know, the, the bit of pipe. So now they've changed the way that they procure those standpipes to actually get the company that provides them to change the valve every two or three years, depending on the, the type that they're, they're using, which has hugely reduced, firstly, the cost, but also it's enhanced the value because they're no longer recycling a, a pipe that's perfectly usable, but the, the valve was broke. It's relatively easy, really, to, to both uh, incorporate circular economy thinking and reduce costs. So that's fundamentally what the program will do, the circular economy innovation communities will do. But we're not saying to local authorities, we've got a solution and you just need to plug this in because I think we all know in this room that it doesn't quite work like that innovation. What we're saying as a program is we'll bring you together. We'll introduce you to some tools, techniques around innovation. We'll outline what circular economy thinking or circular economy uh, mechanisms mean. 
uh, and you bring us a problem, you bring us a challenge, and we'll support you to develop a solution collaboratively that you can embed within, for argument's sake, the Swansea Bay region, mm. which will in turn enhance value and reduce our carbon footprint in some way. So I think that sounds really positive, you know, the, the sharing of knowledge and the communities of practice. And I think the only comment we would make, I, guess, I suppose, with a, with a private sector hat on, is that local authorities and public services also need to be listening to the wisdom coming from the private sector as well as part of that. And so perhaps there'll be opportunities for that community of practice as it grows to bring in the voices of the private sector as well. And the conversations we've had, which we call whole system conversations, yeah. and the, the broader the diversity of perspectives, you know, the more innovative the solutions are that emerge, um, that it's so important to actually hear the wisdom that arises, not just the complaining. I think a lot of pub public services organizations think that all that the small businesses want to do is complain about the fact that they're not winning any contracts and that's absolutely not what small businesses want to do but it's just to have their voices heard and their ideas and suggestions heard and examples of where it's worked really well so it's it's, it's bringing everybody into that community of practice isn't it Gary? Absolutely and, and what we'll do is run a conference within each region at least one per annum ho hopefully two once we, we start rolling where, where the those that are developing the new service solutions are encouraged to put them out and prototype them. So the model that we'll be using for innovation is the human-centered design approach or UX, some people call it, which places a huge em emphasis on empathy to start with. So don't go and design something for a, a small business community. Go and ask the small business community what the problems are with the existing system. Then build a rapid prototype and say, okay, well, we think it could look like this take it back to that community and say, what do you think of, of this that we are proposing? So there's a big emphasis on uh, firstly building empathy before you design anything and then rapid prototyping and iteration. And uh, the focus of the program, which will be 10 months, will be three months at, at the front end, facilitating and getting those on the program to understand the innovation tools and techniques. And then seven months in the implementation. And I think far too often, and I, I hear some complaints about education and I'm, you know, I'm not in, in huge disagreement. I think far too often uh, education providers put out programs which tell people how to do stuff, but don't support them necessarily through the, the implementation or, or the application journey, which is, as, as we all know, in terms of any innovation, the far more challenging aspect. Yeah. I'm going to bring Paul Malafont in in a minute, but Lisa, did you want to come back on that? Yeah, so I just wanted to highlight, I think it's fantastic, Gary, all the work that you're, you're doing. It's amazing. A circular economy is something I'm quite passionate about as, as well, recycling, reusing. Um, and last year we had a great construction project in the city centre in Cardiff where we engaged a group of young carers and young women to, to rebuild an empty space and turn it into a pink beach club um, using all recycled materials. But it was fantastic because it gave the community real ownership and there was something like six and a half thousand visitors there over the four or five days and it really it gave the young people a sense of passion and purpose over where they lived and I think that is really for me what I'd like to see more of you know throughout the regeneration construction programs is that we're really you know engaging young people and women into those construction initiatives because 
you know, in Wales, like lots of lots of women and girls often volunteer, they often work in low paid roles in part time positions or their carers. And I think we really need to like grasp that and, and, and create more opportunities for, for especially for women and girls. There are 5% of women in engineering, only 3% of women in manual trades and 12% of women at professional roles. And I think with the circular economy, I think it's a fantastic way to link women into the innovation and also into the development. So recycling and upcycling plastic is something I've been looking at this week, how, how we use that in an innovative way, what's already happening. I've heard some really interesting stories about what people are doing in that space. But I think often we see quite a lot of initiatives within our areas that are typically I'd say 80-90% male owned and I think we really need to look at projects that are female owned and that are female led to encourage women in leadership roles as you mentioned in the in the chat so developing some more of those role models so that other young people can follow in, in their footsteps and, and create those innovative solutions I think is really key but yeah that, that project so we trained and upskilled 20 young people they were 50-50 gender split they learned basic um, carpentry skills basic painting design and they worked on the whole transformation from start to finish so um, they were involved in the design the planning and the build and it was over a, a two-week phase I think it shows how you can really make a difference in that space when there's a when there is sometimes a targeted approach yeah very interesting there I think Julie spoke about how communities have been hollowed out and you know our, our small economy our foundational economy becomes barren and sterile when we don't involve people in decisions and opportunities in their local communities to shape their local areas and the spotlight's on that more than ever and it will be won't it as the economic fallout of the pandemic uh, continues to bite right across Wales how do we actually provide those opportunities for people to feel part of something to feel involved and empowered and procurement you know it can fix a lot of things if it's targeted and if it's designed and, and if it's strategic because of the huge amount of money that is spent there's there's such power in the hands of procurement it can be transformational so it's exciting to look at some of those opportunities I want to talk a bit about the well-being of future generations act and the importance of developing what we call a well-being economy here in our region and mm. someone who is really passionate about this and has done a lot of work over the last few years in, in how we embed the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act and the Wellbeing Goals into, particularly into construction and development, is Paul Malafont. Paul, are you there from Mott MacDonald? Welcome to the conversation. I'd just say, yes, I am from Mott MacDonald. I'm the Development Director for Wales for Mott MacDonald, but I'm also the Chair of the Board of Management of Constructing Excellence in Wales. And I've been leading their initiative on construction for future generations and feeding into Sophie Howe's 2020 report and the like on procurement. I actually published last year a prospectus on construction for future generations, and I highlighted in the foreword there, I felt that there were only two things that we should be driving at. The first was to save this planet for future habitation by a all human future generations and all species and so on. So we have an appropriate balance there. I've always said that anything else that we look, talk about, about finding another planet to live on and so on, look after what we've got. So that fits into what Gary was saying about the circular economy. And the second is to support individuals, communities and society to thrive, an appropriate and positive balance of economic, social, environmental and cultural well-being. And I've always felt that if we're not 
ensuring that this planet is habitable and we're not ensuring that our people are happy and, and contented, then I'm, I'm just wondering what we're doing. In recent times, obviously, things have changed significantly. And there's been a recent push as well for, and everybody's talking about, well, we need shovel-ready projects for construction. And, I, and I'm not actually particularly enamored by that phrase because we don't want to be building the wrong things in the wrong places and, and in the wrong way. And I prefer, my, my chief executive, I think, came up with this one. I prefer shovel-worthy. They're worthy to be built. They, they are the right projects to be designed in the right way and so on. But I think that the, they have to be designed in the construction sector to support the local supply chain because if we're not designing in that manner, then, then we're going to struggle. I'll give a very simple example. If we design something with a large number of piles, there's no piling company based in Wales, therefore we export it all. We get the bed and breakfast for the uh, the piling rig crew, and we don't really get anything else. So how we design is is interesting. But I've been in a few conversations recently about um, procurement in construction, but particular and, and people tend to gravitate very quickly to oh there's too many frameworks or it's always price that wins and even when it's price versus quality then the quality scores always end up very similar so it comes down to price and one of the things that I've been pushing to get people to think about is is actually what it is you're actually trying to buy because what we normally procure is the what I call the construction outputs you know, it's the bricks and mortar, it's the tarmacs and white line and so on. And then we say, oh, by the way, can we have some community benefits while we're at it? I wonder whether we can change that and procure for the outcomes that we're trying to achieve. And if we specify, let's take a school, um, you know, we want enhanced educational outcomes as a simple metric. That's what we're trying to procure. We're not trying to procure a building. The fact is that we happen to need a building to put the students in to do that. And, and I think that there's a flip on what it is that we're trying to procure, which is a big flip. And it focuses much more as well, or it allows us, I think, to focus much more on what I like to call opportunity management, not just risk management. The construction sector is very, very good at putting everything down as risk management and put health and safety to one side because I'll accept that's proper risk management. Uh, anything else, any other risk that we want to write down, we could change the English words and turn it into an opportunity. And I do wonder whether if we just changed our mindset, our way of thinking, and it was always trying to think not of how can things, what could go wrong and how do we stop it going wrong, but what could go right and what can we do to make it go even more right? And my suspicion is we'll come up with even more ideas than we would do if we're always got that negative mindset, trying to get that opportunity focus Procuring for outcomes in, in some shape or form would be a good way of looking at it. And Transport for Wales, to a certain extent, have already sort of done some work on this because when they were procuring the operator and development partner for the South Wales Metro, they didn't say, we want a light rail system or something like that. What they said is, this is our capital budget. This is our revenue support budget. So you've got your finances fixed. We want better services. We want more regular services. We want more services. We want greener services. We want newer rolling stock and so on. How are you going to do it? And they brought the market in very early to come up with new ideas, having basically told them a whole chunk of the outcomes that they were actually trying to generate. That's so interesting, Paul. I, I really appreciate the kind of flip in perspective that you've offered there. A key message that I've picked up from what you've just said is this 
the, the importance right at the design process, designing to support the local supply chain is, is one of the key things. And we, we see that all the time as an excuse, don't we, of why particular contracts or particular parts of contracts can't be procured locally because, oh, well, the architects have specified this particular kind of stone or this particular construction method, and that's just not available in our region. So we have to import it from China or wherever it is. Again, I think that partly comes back to local procurement right right from the start because if you procured if you had a contract with a local architect who might know better what is available in the local supply chain and at least you know making that a real priority right from the beginning of when new developments are being designed in such a way that they're designed to play to our strengths in our, our regional supply chain, but also the gap analysis is so important. Identifying really early on which parts of a particular contract won't be available locally and looking at how we can make those available locally through different models, maybe through creating a social enterprise that can start to provide something that the private sector isn't already providing in the region. So that's really interesting, designing to support the local supply chain. But then that key shift in mindset to procuring for outcomes, I think is, is a much needed shift to say, actually the purpose of this spending needs to be to build local resilience and to build prosperity in the local region, that that's the point, that's why we're spending this money. And, and yes, perhaps we want this building out of it, but how can we build that in a way that actually delivers on all these bigger goals and all these well-being goals, which is where, you know, we have a real benefit, I think, in Wales, because we have articulated through the Wellbeing of Future Generations Act, what we want, we know what we want. There's no debate about that. We've got the seven wellbeing goals set out for us. It's really clear. It wouldn't be a massive leap to embed those goals much more centrally in, in decision-making when it comes to procurement. I mean, Julie, it's one of the things you talk about, isn't it, about what are the positive outcomes that you get, the better value that you get when you procure locally and the, the value for money of the higher level of service. I mean, if you would you like to come back in on any of that, Julie? There are a huge amount of positives that can be derived from taking a step back in terms of procurement and the way that we do business. Now, in, for, for those who don't know, we were quite unusual really in being awarded a Welsh government grant for which the project was called Provide and Thrive. And it was completely embedded in all the principles of both the circular economy and the well-being of Future Generations Act. Regrettably, because of the pandemic, the, the project wasn't able to continue so it's been sort of mothballed really because we're invested in the local community and because we had to press pause on my dearly beloved pet project I went back to the drawing board very early on as you recall Dawn to look at actually what can we do what part can we play how can we mobilize things to the community's benefit and the community I take to be the region obviously um, we work throughout Wales and you know become conversant and cognizant of lots of different regional issues but with regard to looking at helping the community as an SME in the area. I was invited by Dawn to attend a roundtable event 
with SCBS, the local voluntary service. And as a direct consequence of that, I find myself now the centre of a coordination hub, which has in a very meaningful way supported the local community and wider community. We got involved in setting up a helpline. We set up telephone service for people who were in difficulty. We set up a, shop a shopping service. I helped to coordinate a team of volunteers in the area and coordinators. We have 10 coordinators and 70 local volunteers who are all actually providing services to local people in the community. We gave over our office space as a coordination centre for the production of PPE and this PPE was hospital grade and was actually made by people that can in the community who no longer work in factories, wedding dress designers or factory sewers. Out of our offices over 25,000 pieces of PPE were actually donated to local hospitals, to local care homes, even to vet surgeries. I set up an isolation support group on Facebook, which now has 1,500 members. We set up a lunch club serving takeaway lunch club to vulnerable people in the community. And I've personally been involved in the provision of 500 meals. Now, you know, coming back to the question about what you get in terms of value for money out of small businesses. And I honestly, and you know, and I know plenty of people in the arena that I work in who've all done wonderful, wonderful things. And yet they don't get invited around the table. They don't get included in dialogue that's meaningful. My fear is that if you projectize everything, then it becomes almost an exercise, an exclusive and somewhat paternalistic exercise where we're always telling people what they need rather than get down to their grassroots level and say, what would help you? What would make it better for you? Would it be helpful if we all use the same platform? for example, for procurement. Would that be helpful? Yes, actually it would, because then they would only need to learn to use one. So, you know, there's Proactis Plaza, there's eTender Wales, there's Bravo Solutions, there's Sell to Wales. People don't stand a chance. People don't stand a chance to get their foot on the ladder. And instead of consistently saying to small businesses and companies just like mine, this is what you need. How about asking them in a forum, you know, like this one? I'm sad to see that I'm on my own here representing, apart from my, the very um, much esteemed Paul, uh, representing the private sector because it's got so much to offer in a positive and contributory way that it shouldn't be sidelined and it shouldn't. Yeah. You know, it it shouldn't be driven down to the level where you, you, no disrespect to anybody that's doing you know small in schemes mm. with, with recycling and what have you. No disrespect to that at all. That's fantastic work. 
but they can do big things too. You know, they can do big things too and collaborative working needs to be looked at, getting businesses together, doing things. There's a lot to be optimistic about, but they need to be round the table. I think you're right, Judy, in that, in that context that you've set up some amazing projects is that we do need to link them onto some of the larger contracts that we're working on. And as you've said, you're doing so much innovation, but actually a lot of the Welsh economy is based in that, you know, at the grassroots level. And we need to be engaging those into our construction programs, into regeneration. So that, that type of project that you talked about with, with our top 10 projects, that could form part of the top 10. We'd match them then to a contract then for community benefits, but it gives it value and, and it gives it support so that the other contractors who are much bigger can then offer that, I suppose, larger learning from the larger contract and learning from small and innovative, because often when you're small, you can be dynamic, you can be quick to the market and, you know, you've got a lot of community engagement. So I think it is about how we link those two together much more effectively and that we add investment into it, really. We need to put more investment into those projects, which are really valuable. And often, I think, what from what I've seen, often are led by women in the community. And I think we need to add more value onto that. So one of the things that we're looking at at the moment in the Pandari region is we've got a lady there who's been working voluntary for the last four months throughout the pandemic with food share schemes, community engagement. We're now looking at creating a funded paid position for that person. I mean, that's just an example, but I think we just need to add more value onto the, the work that you're talking about, which is absolutely amazing. I think one of the key things from what Julie's saying there is that when you have healthy, re resilient companies in a local area that have all sorts of resources, whether those are office space that they can redeploy, staff and people and skills that communities need. Resilient businesses in a local community, thriving and flourishing companies are there in the good times and the bad times and they can step up and deliver so much value and resilience in that community. Whereas if those small businesses don't exist, then you just haven't got that whole structure and infrastructure and ecosystem of skills and resources at community level. I think that's just such a key point. Who else would like to come in with any thoughts as we draw this conversation to an end? Zoe? I just wanted to pick up on what Paul mentioned, and it's been discussed quite a bit about procurement officers and being part of the design process. We ran a conference just before Christmas called The Art of the Possible, where it was a bigger version of this, where we brought about 100 people into a room, and that included procurement officers from different public sector organisations from across the region. And actually, lots of the feedback from them and um, the conversations that they had around the tables was they, they would like to be part of that design process, be part of the project from the very beginning so that they understand what needs to be procured from the very beginning, from the design concept straight away. I wonder, Nigel, what your thoughts were around that? Um, well, I totally agree, to be honest, because working for in procurement for so long, I can, I can probably quote loads of examples where we wish we'd have been involved at the beginning because of all the problems that happen afterwards. You know, people don't think about the, the, the long term, you know, but the, the availability of the after sales support, or it could be spares, products, anything really. And uh, we're, you're always then picking up the, the pieces afterwards. So I think it, it's to, to be involved in that, it's sort of the engineering of the specification on the process right at the beginning is, is a huge plus. Uh, specifically, I think there's, there's definitely a sort of a, 
crossover maybe between architects and procurement because architects have a specific leaning and then afterwards it's not always easy to pick those pieces up but I, I must say in Pembrokeshire that that gap has closed and you know we have addressed a lot of that. Paul would you like to come in again? Yeah, I was just going to say, you know, we, we projectizing, I think, was a word that was used earlier on. I'm not too sure if I've got the right context here, but often we can we can just get people fixated on a single project in a single location and forget about the potential impacts on uh, maybe even be able to deliver other things at exactly the same time, probably not for any more money, as is often the case. Or if it is more money, there's a different fund and you can bring things in and look more holistically. That requires, uh, you know, cross-departmental working. I've worked in organizations before that were very, very departmental and, and difficult to do. I started my career with the National Coal Board, so I can criticize them as much as I like because they don't exist anymore. To actually make the, these sorts of things work, you do need real leadership to do things differently, and you need to have people empowered to do things differently. Uh, I had the, the pleasure of being seconded into Merthyr Tidville County Borough Council a few years ago to deliver a new infrastructure scheme at Abervan. Uh, to support regeneration of the old colliery surface site, just as we were heading towards the 50th anniversary of the disaster. It, a very politically driven, focused piece of work. And the project wasn't going very well. And I fixed the project and we delivered the project. And I remember talking to some of the local officers there and uh, saying, do you agree with what I did? And they said, yes, yes, because it worked. I said, would you have made the same decisions? No, because I would have been scared of losing my job. And that is not right. And then we also added some additional value uh, I couldn't do much with the design because the scheme was already in existence before I joined. But having communication, having conversations with the local community, preferably really upfront, I was lumbered with having to do it in hindsight. And not just, we're going to do this to you, but we're you know, going to talk to them and saying, what can we do together? And I delivered a, an infrastructure scheme. It was flood defenses. It was a new road. It was a couple of new bridges. It was a new recycling center. We also inspire the local community to launch a new uh, scout troop. We found the venue for that scout troop. We did some CS, uh, you know, some services, free services to actually clean it up on the outside. We found the funding for them to get rid of the a little bit of asbestos that was in the building and so on, so they could get it there. We inspired them to create a new uh, Christmas fair, and I served on the committee for that Christmas fair for three years. That was two years after I'd finished the job and walked away. You have to have that willingness to have a conversation with people, and unfortunately, often there are people around the place who are in leadership positions who actually don't like working with people. They'd be much happier. To working with a spreadsheet and unfortunately whatever your spreadsheet does a human <coughs> being is unlikely to do just that you've got to work with them they're different styles of people and so on be brave talk to people come up with ideas but work with them i think that's yeah. what's so interesting about what pobble have done in bringing lisa into the team because lisa you're clearly someone that actually wants to be out there talking to small businesses and and members of the community and making sure that they're really part of the decision making. Do you think the example of, of the Penderi project is one that can be scaled up and rolled out, not just across Pobble's developments across Wales, but in other organisations? What are the key learnings that you'd like to see scaled up? For me, I think it's, it is really about engaging the community at grassroots level, and I'm really passionate about making a difference. So I, I probably work day and night thinking about how I can help other small micro businesses, how I can help someone with setting up a gym, how I can link them into a construction pro project. But also more importantly, I think, because I'm passionate about working in construction and regeneration, and I've had 
an amazing journey with my with my business and with partners I really like to share that with others so sharing my knowledge and sharing that with others so I think yeah the the Pendary region will be a, a flagship and, and a model that can be replicated and it, we're, we're looking at Pendary as a, an exemplar project but I feel that you know if, for example I was in um, Hill in Newport last week I'm um, talking to some local community members there four years ago they had a million pounds in funding from the big lottery I worked in Pill in Newport about 12 years ago and they've had small changes but I really think it's about what people see on the grassroots the fact is lots of areas and some communities feel like they're a bit forgotten and for me I think it's in my blood and in my nature to really want to help those communities thrive and prosper I definitely think it's, it will be the Pendary region will be a flagship um, that we can share our knowledge with others and also that the concept around this top 10 I've made this concept up by the way <laughs> it's a new pilot but basically it's a concept of looking at what's people are doing in the local communities that are really making a difference and how we can match those community benefits to the top 10 projects and really help them to, to grow. So it's a long-term sustainable approach. It's not something that, oh, we've got this top 10 projects and you know, we may support them through funding, training, upskilling um, and investment. It, we're really looking at how we can have that as a longer term sustainable approach. At the moment, we've got 50-50 gender split on those top 10 projects. They're, they're, some of them are CIC, some of them are micro businesses and some of them are voluntary. I'll be working with them over the next two years. So it's a longer term sustainable approach. And I think if, if we look at that longer term approach, you know, how we can engage more women and girls, create more opportunities for young people, how we can look at you know, getting more 50-50 gender split on our construction sites through our contracts, then I think it's, it's definitely a model that we'll be able to replicate. But mainly it's, it's looking at how we simplify but engage in the community. So we recently launched about four or five weeks ago a, a project called Our Local Superstars, which was all about celebrating local people in the community who go in the extra mile throughout the pandemic. And it was really just hearing from local people and, and the difference that they're making and it's had a hugely positive response so some of the projects they've had like 6,000 7,000 views online some of them now have started relatively small and now they're looking at growing in a number of different ways and but I think for for example in the pill area that they've they've got investment there but it's looking at getting that money out to where it needs to go to in the grassroots and making sure that the regeneration projects can take place and create opportunities for local people so I think Sometimes the community members can get disheartened, especially around at the moment around the pandemic. I think sometimes they feel isolated, like they haven't had you know any investment, and that nobody really cares about them. Um, so I think you know once we start introducing more initiatives that really make a difference. I think we'll see a, ma a massive amount of change. But I think, you know, from a community perspective, everybody's going through huge changes. We're decarbonising our communities. We're encouraging people to walk and cycle to work. Our city centres are, are radically changed within about four months. So for me, I think it's looking at how we can still make sure that people prosper within that process and that we encourage prosperity for everyone. And I think through the Pendary project, that will be an example, but how and, and, and what we deliver over the next few years will, will be key to the transformation. Which brings us on to the, the subject and the topic of this 
series of conversations, this podcast, Build Back Better, you know, huge disruption, massive change that's been brought about by the pandemic. And really, it's in times of great disruption that we need to innovate and build back better. And as, as Paul was saying, the importance of, of those leaders in organizations making change happen because all too often it's so easy to just revert to business as usual and we know that business as usual was a broken system even before the pandemic and the pandemic has probably shone a light on that and I also appreciated again I think it was Paul you were talking about that strength-based approach that looking that opportunity focus not like what are the risks but what are the opportunities here what what could we have if we did this differently and did this better so I think it's interesting to think about all of these things in the round and it highlights again for me the huge value from a whole system conversation where you've got lots of different perspectives and sharing of ideas and knowledge and I think that's what's important Gary about your project at Swansea University which hopefully we can all stay connected with as that moves forward which is about establishing that community of practice that will share some of the learnings and some of the great examples of what's already happening and how we can scale that up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of these concepts are related. So as Paul points out, it, it's about understanding and articulating outcomes that we're looking for. So, so a very basic example of incorporating circular economy thinking is suggesting or putting out in a procurement that you want to light a building or light a space. Now, that doesn't say that you want to procure some new lighting. So one solution would be to, to place a Velux into that building or into that space because that will bring light in and it won't cost anything and obviously reduces carbon footprint. So, so that's a, a very basic example of, of how we can start to incorporate circular economy thinking by placing that emphasis on outcomes, which, which comes from the Green Book approach, which uh, I mean, no doubt you're all aware of. And the other element that the circular economy innovation community will embed in people's thinking is the HCD approach, the human-centered design approach, which places huge emphasis on gaining empathy with the users or the customers of a solution or, or a problem prior to designing anything. So it, it does ask people to go and find out exactly what the, some of the roots of the problems are. Now, if for argument's sake, uh, a group of, of people from the public services were looking at some of the challenges SMEs face in accessing public sector contracts, the first thing that the model would suggest they do and, and the process that will encourage people to adopt is to go and talk to local SMEs about the challenges they face and also ask them for su suggestions on what could be changed uh, within the process. So then uh, the model suggests they start to ideate, you know, they start to develop some solutions to the problem after gaining empathy and understanding what users and customers think. And then is, there's, a, uh, there's a huge emphasis on rapid iteration. You know, they, they then take the proposed solution back to the community they engaged with. In this example, it was looking at the challenges SMEs face to, to engage in, in public sector procurement. Then that uh, solution would then be iterated a number of occasions before it's put in place. Again, using the uh, social learning theory model of, of communities of practice the idea is then that you keep sharing that solution with the community that you engage with now that could be uh, one community in procurement people that work across the swansea bay region within local authorities 
and it could be also within another community that you might be engaged with which drawing on, on Paul's example you might also be a chair of, of a local initiative that's trying to enhance uh, and as Lisa is um, a specific area so hopefully you take that thinking back into that group as well and as you pointed out uh, at the top of this uh, uh, dawn the idea is to spread the knowledge across an area but also draw on the knowledge within an area so uh, that's what we're going to try to do we're, we'll encourage these inter-organizational communities of practice in other words different organizations coming together uh, but we then embed the idea of communities of practice so that they share that learning across the various communities that each individual is involved in we'll share as much of the learning we can both in terms of the process that people go through but also some of the outcomes that are achieved. So, uh, you know, I, I do think a lot of these uh, areas that, that we're talking about are linked. And if we do emphasize outcomes and we do emphasize an approach that engages people, then we're far more likely to, to have both more effective solutions, but also circular economy value-driven solutions. There are a lot of medium and large companies in Wales that do engage with a micro and, and SME supply chain. So I don't think the picture is as stark as some might paint that you know SMEs are little able to engage with larger contracts because I know there's there's quite a few that certainly I've worked with as part of of Ion that do engage with larger businesses both locally and and nationally and, and internationally for that matter as valuable parts of a supply chain. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that is a point and that's often pointed to with some of these major contracts that maybe the tier one contract goes to a large outsourcing company, but there are benefits in the supply chain, but it's about how we can improve on that. I, it, was an, it was an interesting conversation we had at one point about these large outsourcing companies, which is effectively what some of these major contractors are and is that good enough nigel i'll bring you in for a final thought i just wanted to add something something i was thinking about earlier we've obviously concentrated on the discussion on the large value contracts and the frustrations and how we can help smes and micro businesses but i think we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that there's an awful lot of money in the lower level contracts as well whereby most of the public sector organizations have no formal arrangements for their procurement so there's not a lot of red tape. There's not a lot of requirements for suppliers. It's just really finding a way of br bridging that gap. How do we communicate? How does the supplier communicate what they got to offer? Uh, and how do our internal departments, who, who, because of the low value, which all adds up, how do they get in touch with those suppliers as well? And I think we're, you know, within Pembroke, we're still searching for that a little bit. One obvious thing is to potentially to have an internal policy and advise people maybe to, to, to reference everything on sale to Wales. For example, within our organisation, anything under, well, under £25,000 isn't covered by our own procurement team. There are sort of, sort of rules and regs that departments have to follow, but they're much less rigid than a formal tender. And I think, to, thinking back to when I've met with suppliers before, many of the smaller suppliers aren't necessarily interested in the large contracts anyway. They, they, they want the, a lot of the smaller contracts. So I think there's definitely some work that can be done there to help them in that way, to help us both in that way. 
Good point. Yeah, good point. There's a huge amount of money that gets spent in small contracts and how do we make those more accessible and raise, raise awareness of those opportunities. Lisa, did you want to come in? Highlighting what Nigel said, it sounds like there's fantastic opportunities there for the smaller businesses to win some of that work. So I'm wondering whether, you know, collaboratively as, as a group, you know, we could even look at um, sharing that information and what's out there on those smaller contracts and disseminating that out to a much wide, wider audience so that we can send that information out and get a wider um, benefits um, because I think sometimes we we know that there's some of the smaller contracts there which is amazing um, and lower value um, can we push them out to a much wider audience can we let some of our women and girls know in our communities that those prod, uh, contracts are available is, is there a bit more that we can do I suppose disseminate some of that information collectively um, so that we can add more benefit and highlights but I think there's some great opportunities in Pembrokeshire and and you know in, in other parts of Wales, so I, I'm just wondering whether, as a as a you know as a group, that we could share some of that information um, and get it out there to a to a wider audience. But I, I, all I wanted to just highlight was one of the notes that came up from other research that we're do, currently doing in Penderry. There's a lot of people there in the local area that really like motorcycling and motorsports, and and we did have a discussion on whether we could link motorsports into the regeneration plans rather than pushing them out. Also looking at how we can really link in young people and and engage with them for what they're really passionate about. So we've had a discussion around how we can link that in to the Pendary and Swansea area. I mean, you know, is there a space that we can have for motorsports rather than pushing them out of regeneration and design? So that's a, a conversation that we're having. We're thinking about how we can do things different and how bold and ambitious that we can be with our local communities and, and that we're trying to, you know, do things differently and that we're trying to make a change in not just in the Pendary area, but how we can, you know, be bold, be ambitious and do things differently going forward. Very inspiring altogether, hearing from all of you actually about the work that you're doing and your perspectives on the challenges and, and the problems. I mean, at For the Region, we have a newsletter that goes out to over 5,000 people across the region and we are trying to play that role of sharing good news, sharing opportunities. And also we're very keen to engage with the public services boards across the four counties of South West Wales. And possibly that piece that you've mentioned there, Lisa, about identifying and disseminating information on those smaller value contracts and making sure that those opportunities really are getting out to smaller businesses and social enterprises across the region. I think it's all about us working together and that's our whole mission at For the Region, getting the region working together to unlock some of these opportunities. And whatever we do, we need to be thinking about building wealth, building resilience and building well-being in our local communities. And procurement has the power to do that. If we can transform procurement, we can procure that transformation that we all want to see across South West Wales. I think we want, as Paul says, we want shovel-worthy projects. And when we look at things like the city deal, you know, is there an opportunity for much more early engagement with communities, with small businesses, about what those projects could look like so that we're involved, all of us involved in that conversation in shaping those things from the beginning, that we all have that sense of ownership over not just the small things that happen in our local areas, but these big regional infrastructure projects, that actually we get better outcomes when we involve more people in the design of those contracts 
and designing for those beneficial outcomes, designing in alignment with the well-being goals rather than uh, focusing solely on risk management and doing unto people rather than involving people in, in empowering themselves. So much that we've talked about around co-creation, the importance of involvement, the importance of long-term thinking right from the outset and designing things to benefit local supply chains and procuring for those outcomes right from the beginning. So I think it's been a fascinating conversation. I'm always fascinated to look at how much potential there is to make change happen by, by transforming the way we procure goods and services in the region. And I think it shows from the conversation we've had that connections have been made even in a small round table like this. There are lots of opportunities for us all to stay in touch and as for the region, we would encourage any of our listeners, if you've heard from somebody today that you would like to involve yourselves in any of the projects mentioned or speak more to any of our guests, then get in touch with myself and Zoe and we'll be really pleased to make those connections for you. I hope everyone's enjoyed taking part in today's conversation and in listening to it. As always, keep us posted on what you're up to across the region and let's have more conversations about how we can make change happen and create well-being across South West Wales. Thanks all very much and we'll see you again soon. Bye for now.